All right, kids, come on up front and center today. Come on up. You can sit in the front row here, front row or two, or on the floor here, either one. Come on up. Find somewhere to sit. All right. Good to see everyone. Come on over here, guys. Over here. All right. Good to see everyone. Now, today is the last Sunday of Advent. Remember, Advent is when we anticipate Jesus coming or arriving at Christmas, right? We celebrate that at Christmas. So we're going to light our candles again. Who remembers the first candle? Expectation candle, because the people of God expected that a Savior would be coming. Next candle is the? Prophecy candle, because it was, the coming of the Savior was prophesied. It was foretold in the Old Testament, right? What was the candle from last week? Angel candle, because the angels got to announce the birth of the Savior. And today we're going to light the fourth candle, which is the shepherd candle. Everyone say shepherd candle. Yeah, the shepherd candle. So the shepherds at this time, at the time when Jesus was born, they were kind of looked down on. They were forgotten. They were kind of ignored. They were just out in the field with the, the animals, with the sheep. And so they were considered kind of the, the lowly people of, of the society. They weren't really valued too much, even though their role was important. Um, but as we read the Christmas story, the account of, of Christ coming in the Bible, we find that the shepherds were special because they were the first ones to hear about the birth of Jesus, right? So we read, an angel came to them. And said in Luke chapter 2, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so they had to be, that had to be really exciting news for them to hear, right? The shepherds heard this great news. This was the one they were expecting. This is the one they, they had heard about that was prophesied about. And so do you know what the shepherds did next after they heard this proclamation that Jesus was born? What did they do? Yeah, they went to Jesus. You're absolutely right. In Luke chapter 2, it says they went with haste. They hurried and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So these lowly shepherds were the first to hear of the Savior being born. And after they went to see him, they went and told other people about the Savior. Now, do you think that during Christmas season you can be similar to the shepherds and tell other people about Jesus the Savior? Can you do that? Yeah, you can, can't you? You can tell them about the gospel, about the Savior who has come and died on the cross for sin and was raised to life again. And so you can tell this message just like similar to how the shepherds told. So first candle was the expectation candle, then the prophecy candle, then the angel candle, and this last candle was the shepherd candles because they were the first to hear about the Savior being born. Now there's one more candle left, and that's the middle one. That's the Christ candle. So be sure to come back for a Christmas Eve service, and we'll light the Christ candle. You'll be here? Great. Glad to have you. I'll look forward to seeing you. So you guys can go back and sit, and Pastor Mark's going to come and preach now.
Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Our text this morning is specifically Luke chapter 2, verse 11. We're going to focus on that verse, but let's read Luke chapter 2, 1 through 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cyrenus was governor of Syria, and all who went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among whom those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of the eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask again this morning that this word would be deeply implanted into our heart, that we would know Christ, that we wouldn't just know about him, but I pray that we would experience him this morning afresh and anew as we look to him and understand his names and who he is and also what it is that he came to do for us. We give you thanks, Father, for this gift, for this scripture. I pray that it would be alive, that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see Christ clearly in Jesus' name we give thanks and ask these things. Amen. Before we get too far into the text specifically, I just want to start kind of broad and funnel down this morning and look at the framework of Christianity, uh, generally speaking, where we are at as a people when we come to the Scriptures. And when we come to the Scriptures something that we often do is disconnect who God is, his being, from what God does, his doing. And I want to ask a question, why is that? Why do we often disconnect, fragment, and compartmentalize God? Why do we do that to Christ? 
Why do we in our modern theology have, for instance, this, a different God of the Old Testament from a God in the New Testament? Do you do that? As you're reading the scriptures, do you think of there being a different people of God in the Old and a different people in the New, a different God in the Old, a different God in the New, a different Christ in the Old, a different Christ in the New? Do you fragment the Bible? I would contend that this is very wrong to do. The Bible says that there is no shadow of turning in God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But why do we fracture God himself and disconnect his being from his doing? And I would contend this. It's because we disconnect our being, who we are, from our doing what we do. Do you compartmentalize your life? Do you like to have little boxes and little doors and little corners and you say, God, you're not invited over here, but you can go in this one, right? You're about to go meet God and it's like you're trying to sweep stuff into that closet before you invite him in and get the living room clean and appear like everything's good, but God, don't go in that one closet over there, right? And if you open it, do you all have that closet in your house? The company's coming closet? We do this with God, and it's silly, isn't it? So because we have compartmentalized our beliefs, what we think, from our morals and what we do, and somehow we're okay with that, we too then, we project that onto God himself. We think God does that. So we are making, we're fashioning, we're conjuring up in our mind's eye a God that fits my life. And don't pretend that you don't do that, because I try to do that too. We want a compartmentalized God to fit my compartmentalized, disconnected, fragmented, fractured life. So too, then, we disconnect God's grace and his mercy, for instance, from his justice and his law. We disconnect his attributes. His holiness is disconnected from his mercy and his grace. We don't know how to tie those together. Since we do that with our own lives and because we fashion a God that way, how do you think we do reading the Bible then? If you can compartmentalize your life, you can compartmentalize God, then how do you think you do when you're reading the Bible? Once again, you disconnect the Testaments, don't you? Like one pastor said recently, we need to unhinge or unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Why do you think he does that? He's projecting his views onto the Bible itself so he can fragment it and disconnect it. Instead of having that one redemptive theme running from the Garden of Eden all the way into the Tree of Life in Heaven in Revelation. That golden thread of the Bible that defines our worship, redemption, Christ. Well, we consequently then do that with the Bible as well. We disconnect the Testaments. We disconnect the people of God. We pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we like that fit our fractured life then. So we we cherry pick in the Bible. 
So we then have a fractured theology, or in other words, a fractured view of God and his attributes and his character. And finally, we find our baseline for our discussion this morning. We have a very fragmented, fractured, broken understanding of salvation too. Almost to the point where we have two different ways of salvation then, but since we have two people of God. Where in the Bible, with salvation, the object and the centrality has never changed But in our fractured understanding of salvation, we do this to Christ himself and we fragment him. Salvation, by the way, is justification, sanctification, and glorification. And that has never changed from the very beginning of the Bible to the end until today. There is one way of salvation through Christ. So my argument in summary is this. Here's the big idea. Our living out of theology too often wags the tail of the discipline of theology itself. In other words, we like to formulate a theology, a view of God, instead of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, informing our minds and hearts of who God is and His will and His ways. We try to press onto the Bible our views rather than letting the Bible press our views. Christ needs to define my life, not me define my view of Christ's life. This is done because of our arrogance. I strongly contend that our view of God is fractured, so fractured, so we fracture Christ himself into what we configure Christ to be. And here's what we often configure him into being. We twist him into being a God of all love, all mercy, all grace, and no law, no discipline, no conviction, no warnings. Read Hebrews sometime. Why are those warnings there? He's sovereign over trials, over tribulations for our good. So we've raised essentially a golden calf. And what is this golden calf? A God who saved me unconditionally, requiring nothing of me. Is that what the Bible teaches? That he requires nothing of me once he saved me? Does God's sovereignty dismiss human responsibility as so many contend today? Free grace theology. What utter nonsense. I believe and serve an omnipotent God who owns me and bought me with his son's blood. And he makes demands of me because he's God. So can I live however I want if he owns me? The Bible says, what know ye not? That you are not your own, but you are bought with a price. So what? Live how? We serve a God who bought me with his precious only son's blood, but has no conditions upon me as a royal child. Do I really not have a new identity? Those who argue such anti-biblical nonsense must say that God is kidding when he says, to be holy as I am holy. And he must be joking when he says, there is a holiness without which you will not see God. He must be kidding when he says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be, not maybe, will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. When he regenerated my heart, when he brought me to repent of my sins, to turn to Christ alone for salvation. The beginning of my new life started. 
Now the work begins. But for many, this is where it has stopped because they do not understand that the gospel issues a call from Christ which says, go forth. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves me is accompanied by a life of upward growth, not perfection, but upward growth. The Bible calls this fruit through fighting, through changing, through, through clinging to Christ, through perseverance of the saints, into uh, clinging to Christ by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone, to a life of works, Ephesians 2.10. That one's often not quoted. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But you were created in Christ unto good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. We say faith alone saves, yes, but indeed that faith that saves is accompanied by a life of fruit. Is this a faith that is void of obedience? How is faith defined in the Bible? And I'm going to connect it in a minute to the name of Christ. Is faith passive or is it active? By by faith, Abraham did what? By faith, Abraham went. He moved. Went out. He is the father of faith. And if you're a Christian today, he is your father in the faith. Can faith be consistently void of obedience? It says in Romans 1.5, a true saving faith is defined as a faith of obedience. Can it be disconnected? No. Faith is defined by obedience. In 1625 through 27, at the end of Romans, it's an obedience of faith. Active as a the beginning, it's a faith of obedience. It's an obedience of faith. Faith is defined as active, as a going out, as a life of obedience. You're alive, so you're in Christ, and he saves you. He that saves you will complete that work into the day of Christ. Jesus said this too. If you love me, you will obey me. Not might, but you will obey me. This is certain. The Great Commission includes learning to obey all of Christ's commands. You see, we love and properly should love the fact that Jesus is Savior. He saved me from my sin. That's one half of it. But as Lord, what did he save me to? His Lordship. To a life of obedience. We love being saved from sin. But he saved us to a life of obedience to righteousness. He saved me by his blood. We are washed clean, but it's never disconnected from lordship. You are saved because he saved you, but you are saved to his lordship. But in our binary, linear way of thinking, we in our flesh fight this, and we see these two things as at odds with each other when they never are. Faith is not passive, sitting around, let go and let God, believing that you could just float through this life and end up in heaven one day. Many people want Jesus to get out of hell. They want Jesus to get into heaven, but they don't want Jesus in heaven when they get to heaven because Jesus is not Lord here on earth. Faith in Christ and God and his word, like Abraham, it moves, it goes out, it moves mountains, it shapes your very heart and soul and life. You see, Jesus is Savior. He is full of mercy and grace, incredible kindness, but he is also Christ the Lord. 
Jesus Christ, our Savior, is also Christ the Lord. This is exclusive. It is assigned only to Christ Jesus. He is Christ the Lord, not a Lord. He's not a way, a truth, and a life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. This is exclusive. He is not a Lord. He is Lord. First of all, we by and large do not know what this means. We do not know what this really looks like. Evangelicals, by and large, have done an amazing job teaching Christ as Savior. They've done an awesome job at that. That is commendable. Because for hundreds of years, much of the church did not. For hundreds of years, what was the gospel? Jump through all these hoops to get to God. Right? Many still do that today. That is deplorable. Christ is full of mercy and grace. He came down to us. But they've done a horrible job at teaching Christ as Lord correctly, connecting this to Savior. These two things are inextricably linked together. It is who Christ is. And our Christian life and our doing must be connected to that. His being, his personhood, properly realized in salvation, will have a direct correlation and impact into shaping your being and your doing. The root of Christ in us by Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, will affect our bearing fruit in Christ, for Christ, for the glory of God alone. B.B. Warfield writes this about the word Lord, specifically in this context. The word Lord was to acknowledge his authority. There's a fun word that we love. Authority. How many of you felt a, a weird pit in your stomach when you heard that word, authority? We don't like that. Many of you went through the 60s, and how did that work out, the anti-authority thing? Right? Not too good. The word Lord is to acknowledge his authority and involve subjection to his commandments. And accordingly, the term is represented as employed chiefly by his professed followers. And there's about 15 different verses he cites there, just from the book of Luke. Something of its high implication when so used may be caught from Luke 5.8 in comparison with 5.5. When our Lord, having used Simeon's boat for a pulpit, commands him to let down his nets for a drought, Simon responded the respectful address which implied that he recognized Jesus as superior officer. Epistatus. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at thy word I let down the nets. But when he saw the result in miraculous drought, he fell at Jesus' knees and said... Different word. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Curion. It's the word used here. Lord, capital L. Obviously, the address Lord on the lips of Jesus' followers was charged with a very high significance, and this is born out of its entire use. Jesus as Lord means we both recognize who Christ is and respond correctly to who Christ is. Many people know in their head Jesus is Lord, but it does nothing to the way that they live, or very little at best. Lordship is inseparably linked to the name of Jesus and defines who this Jesus is. Just as much as Jesus is Savior, he is also Lord, capital L. He takes it all and demands it all. Just as salvation is exclusive through Christ alone, so Jesus is the Lord of our life. The title Lord is God's title all throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, isn't it? We're talking about God. They call him Lord. They address him as Lord. Even in this passage here, we see uh, that he's addressed as Lord. 
and he's the Lord's Christ. Okay? And so we'll get to that in a minute, but this, this addresses who God is. God has this title, and Jesus has this title as well. Sometimes we have God way up here, and we have Jesus down here by us. And he was man, and he identifies with us. But in, in as much as he is transcendent, he is also imminent. He transcends, and he is imminent with us. He is also far above us. Where is he today? Where is his localized presence, as we call it? It's at the right hand of the Father. This word Lord bears great significance to his deity and his divinity. It's fully God, fully man. And this has been a debate for a long time, and I'm not going to get into that debate this morning, but we believe that Jesus is fully God, yet he was fully man. That's called the hypostatic union. Claire's been teaching about that. Do you know how many volumes of books have been written on just that subject alone? I'm talking volumes. So we're not going to get into that this morning. But go talk to Claire if you have more questions. We obviously believe that Jesus is God. He is Lord. He is one with the Father. Jesus and the Father are one. And I want you to note that the title Lord is connected to who Christ is. We see over and over in this passage that we're addressing today that same concept. In 2, 25 through 33, it writes this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, and that's very significant too, revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Who's he talking about? Who's Christ? God's Christ. He's addressed as Lord here too. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord. So he's addressing God as Lord. Jesus is called Lord. Jesus is also God. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That's Jesus. He's looked upon Christ, the child. He's seen salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. So Jesus came through Israel for the world. There's the redemptive theme of the scriptures. And for glory to your people, Israel, but who are also God's people. Those who are grafted in, Romans says, the Gentiles. The oneness of the Father and the Son bearing the same title bears incredible significance. It bears incredible significance also to the Christian walk, not just your heady theology. It, that Jesus belonged to the Father and the Father standing that. So we see here that Jesus belonged to the Father and the Father is called Lord. The Son is called Lord. Though he gave his son Jesus, he belonged to the Father. It says in John 17 as well, Jesus' prayer before he went to the cross, when he finished his first work, what was his first work? Making disciples. What was his final work? The cross. So he's praying in John 17 for his disciples. And he says, I and my Father are one. His prayer was that we would be one just as they are one. Do you know why we have a problem being one as a people? Because we don't understand the oneness of Christ and his Father. 
Jesus prays that we would all be one, just as they are one. Father, he says, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. We cannot be one with the Father unless we are one with Christ and understand his unity with the Father and this too, that he is Lord. Do you know the church has a hard time being unified sometimes? They want Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Churches that are highly unified are very submissive to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is connected to the doctrine of Christ our mediator as well. We cannot have the Father unless we have the Son. So here are those who are modalists. What are modalists? They believe that God is God and he's not Jesus or the Son. When he's Jesus, he's not God anymore. He's shifted to being Jesus. When he's the Spirit, he's not Jesus or the Father. He shifts into different modes. How are they going to do with this passage here? Right? Where, where we, we have him praying, right? We have him praying and, and thanking God that his eyes are seeing salvation and he's praying to God. Is he switching back and forth in that prayer super fast? No. They're going to have a problem with Jesus' baptism too, aren't they? The Father says, this is my son, and he comes up out of the water and the Spirit descends like a dove. You've got all three, don't you? Modalism does not work. God is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and the Holy Spirit also demands that we submit to him. Jesus is fully God, yet fully man. All that which is important, and you should appreciate sound doctrine, all that to say this, in order for Jesus to be your Savior, he must be your Lord. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot accept a fractured Christ. I am not minimizing the corporal aspect, but today he must be your personal Lord and Savior. So if he must be Lord to be Savior, then to accept Christ and accept him as both. P. Andrew Sandlin writes this in his, his book, Faith Alone Saves, that God saves sinners totally by grace through faith in Jesus. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. I think we all believe that, don't we? We're not undoing that doctrine. But do we believe that a person can trust Jesus as Savior and not Jesus as Lord? A.W. Tozer asked this question. Can you put your faith and trust in a divided Christ? Can you trust a divided Christ? That's what we've been selling for the last 60 years to people, by and large. Do you want to get out of hell? Do you want to go to heaven? Oh, it's that easy? I'll take two. You've got to bow the knee. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We cannot accept a divided Christ. Jesus is and can't not be Lord and Savior. We cannot divide his offices. We must be unified in our understanding and our Christology. An example may help here. No woman, at least not that I'm aware of, not my woman, maybe your woman, but I think they're very similar from what I'm gathering. No woman in her right mind would tolerate this language. I take you, this woman, to be my lawfully wedded wife. I used to think when I was a kid that was awfully wedded wife. But it's lawfully wedded wife. But if God blesses us with children, she will not be the mother of my children. How many, how many of you women would, would go with that? No, I'm going to marry this man. 
I better be having his kids if God blesses us with children, right? No woman would, would tolerate that mindset. To take a woman as a wife means that if God blesses us with children, that she'll be the mother of my children. On a much more important and great scale, to recognize Christ as Lord and the Spirit of God does that through the word, trusting Jesus as Savior means worshiping, trusting, recognizing him as Lord. When we trust Jesus Christ for salvation, regenerated, we repent, we, re- we, we turn to, from sin to Savior, trusting in his work alone to provide atonement, redeeming me, restoring me, here's what we do. We place our hope and destiny in his finished work. We're trusting him. We're trusting him to save us, to be our savior, but we're committing our life to his care. That's really living under the lordship of Christ. Are you entrusting your life to his care, believing him, trusting him, that there's promises connected to the commandments? Do you believe that? We do, we do for our children. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right, and it will be, what? Well with you. There's such blessings to the lordship of Christ, but do we understand that? It's like this, I love Jesus as my Savior, but if he's going to be my Lord, my life's going to be miserable because I can't do this, I can't do that, and I can't do that. And it's all about all these things you can't do. And you look at it as this horrible thing. That is not the gospel. The gospel frees us to to a submissive understanding to Christ and to the joy of keeping God's commands. We commit ourselves into his care we commit ourselves to, uh, to responding to his sanctifying process through our life. There can be no sanctification without submission to the lordship of Christ. Do you know why so many people are having a hard time with their sanctification? Who are they battling? They're, they're not battling their flesh. They're giving into it. Who are they battling? Jesus, the one trying to save them. It's like you're in the water drowning and Jesus gives you his hand and you're batting it away saying, stop trying to save me. (laughs) That's really how a lot of sanctification pictures are. You've been there? You've done that. I've done that. The point, which is sometimes brought with contention, is not that Christians would always obey in sinless perfection. That's heresy, by the way. But the goal is that one commits his present life to the Lord Jesus and not merely just his eternal destiny, but now. We put great thought into our eternal destiny one day, but what are you doing today to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? How are you doing with that? Remember last week in regards to Jesus as Savior, Pastor Jeremy referenced that salvation is for now and Forevermore. And we sing that in the songs, don't we? Both for now and forevermore. The question then is this. When does your salvation start? Started when what? When you turn from sin to your Savior. He washed you clean. You're born again. You're alive in Christ. You cry out to him saying, Lord, I need you. You're saved now because you recognize I need Jesus. That's the heart of a Christian. I really need Jesus today. Need him every day. Need him every hour. Okay? So you started that, and then you start your life of sanctification, of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
The idea here is praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Folks, that is the Christian life. That's sanctification every day. I want your will done on earth as it is in heaven. And how is it done in heaven? When God says something, is it done? Oh, you betcha. Those angels, God says, I want you to go do something. What do they do? Thy will be done. The heart of the Christian life is this. Thy will be done. But do you know why we're bucking the Lordship of Christ so much? It's because we want our will done. But God, I. But God, I want. But God, I. You been there? You're battling the Lordship of Christ because you want what you want. But Jesus says, you're going to follow me. You're going to come and die. Take up your cross and follow me. Thy will be done. Isn't that right here in the Christmas story? Mary finds out she's going to have the Lord. Is it going to mess her life up, so to speak? Having, she's not married yet. She's going to be pregnant. Do you think that messed her life up? She had all these questions, but what does she do? It's whatever you want, God. It's what you want. We see here, too, all throughout these, these opening pages of Luke, over and over, these different characters, they submitted their hearts to what God wanted. And if you're honest with me, and I'm honest with myself, our biggest problem is we buck that. Because I want what I want. My journey coming to this church was one of breaking the will. I've been in ministry for 12, 13 years, some, some really hard places. Wasn't sure if I wanted to continue on in the ministry. And I'm coming home from swimming one night with my boys because i got to tire them out. It helps your marriage, by the way, to think of those things. And we're driving home and we're doing our catechism. And uh, we're back to the beginning. What is my only hope in life and death is the question. And the boys are saying that I am not my own, but I am bought with a price. Which is scripture, by the way. And I, God just broke me and reminded me, I am not my own. God wants something. He prepares something. He makes it clear. When it's not clear, it's because I'm bucking. When you submit, it's what? It's clear, isn't it? You know what God wants. And there's a joy in that. Immense joy. Submission. Submission is what God requires So we have to consider whose will we are obsessed with, don't we? How much of the day are you obsessed with your own will versus the will of God? And is it pretty simple knowing what his will is? It's pretty simple, isn't it? It's not rocket science. He makes it plain. The scriptures display his will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What God asks, we do. So what are we obsessed with? Whose will are we obsessed with? Mary accepted and replied and exercised submissive faith. Jesus prayed all throughout his ministry to what? To do the will of the Father. He said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. What is our food? To do God's will. Jesus submitted to the Father, the fully God, and we think that we don't have to be submissive to Christ. It's this understanding of Coram Deo, isn't it? Living before the face of God. 
So let me ask you this question. Can you, if Christ is Lord over all your life, can you divide your life into the sacred and into the secular? Or are all things now what? Sacred. You know when you get into real trouble? When you try to divide and fracture your life. We're going back to that beginning talk. Trying to fracture your life into the sacred, the secular, this part of my life, that part of my life. Here's my work life. Here's my home life. Here's my church life. No, it's all under the lordship of Christ, isn't it? Can you really divide your life into sacred and secular? I would say no. So here's the deal. Your marriage, your children, your finances, your work, your business, your recreation, your eating and your drinking. Do all to the glory of God. Submit it to the lordship of God. Can all those things be given to Jesus Christ? Can the intent of all those things now be done for his glory and for his honor? As Christians, they ought to be. I pray this week that we take inventory about what it means to submit to Christ as Lord. In all things, to bring Him glory and honor in our marriages, in our work, with our children, your vacations, your recreation, your, your finances, your investments, everything that you do, all your possessions. Who does it really belong to? When Jesus bought you, He bought every part of you. He bought everything you do. He bought everything that you are. He bought everything that you're going to be doing. He owns your life. This is how we worship daily. One cannot worship Christ Jesus as Savior if one does not live with Jesus as Lord. Luke 6.46 says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? It's a good question. Jesus is asking them why they call him something that they don't believe. It's not in their walk. It's not in their life. It's not changing their hearts. They're not obeying his commands. There must be a time in your life when you, like the prophet Isaiah, are willing to say, Here am I, Lord, send me. Or like Mary, so be it, Lord, or in the Lord's Prayer, not my will be done, but thine. The Lordship of Christ must arrest your will, must arrest your affections, must arrest all of your doing. God is a jealous God. He will not be worshipped along other idols. He will not share his glory. He will not tolerate idolatry. He will not be competed with. The Bible says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Jesus is the Lord. B.B. Warfield writes again, Jesus as fully God must be the Lord standing against all other lords. He was thought of as Lord in contrast to the early potentates who were claiming lordship of men and especially in contrast with the emperor in Rome, the Lord, uh, the Lord by way of eminence in all men's minds. To Jesus rather than to the emperor was allegiance due. But we must not forget that the allegiance expressed to Jesus rested on spiritual basis. While perhaps it's going too far to suppose that the divine claims of the imperial monarch were held clearly in mind. The simplest thing to say is that the term Lord was applied to Jesus by Luke, obviously with the deepest reverence and the deepest respect and against all other lords. Here's the question. How do you actually do this, though? How do you do this? Take Jesus at his word, exercise faith, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How do you do with the word of God? Is the word of God on your life or are you on the word of God trying to twist it to suit your desires? There's the big question. When you're reading the Bible, who are you reading? Are you trying to inject yourself? I call that narcissus. 
Or is it exegetical where you bow to Christ, which is on every page of Scripture, by the way? Christ bleeds out of the Scripture. He is the Word. Do you submit to it? He redeemed us and bought us from narcissism, from our will, from our own self-worship. Frees us to bow the knee to him. I've gone long today, so I'll close with this. This is, a, this is a very sobering text that I think a lot of people who go to church for years and years and years may hear one day. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I want you to hear that again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Let me read that again. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and notice what they're saying and who they're pointing to. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Who are they trusting in? Who's their Savior? What they did. Who do we rest in? Christ. I want you to get this. It's Christ as Lord. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. That's, that's an intimate knowledge. I did not know you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They don't like the law. They're lawless. When you are standing in the presence of the Lord, all you can be aware of is that he is Lord. And it's got to start in this life. The testimony of the Christian will be in glory with your knee bowed before the King of kings and Lord of lords, with your eyes filled with tears, heart rendered, rejoicing you will cry out, it's all you, Jesus. You saved me. You bought me. You died for me. You rose for me. You lived for me. You lived righteously because I could not. You brought me from death to life. You bought me and you owned me. And here's the one, you changed me. You caused me by your spirit and with your word to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's also in the scriptures. Christ didn't save us to sit idly by. He saved us to work. We do so by his strength, by his power, and for his glory. So our testimony is it's all you, Jesus. You lived perfectly, you died willingly, you gave freely, you loved me with an everlasting love, you rose victoriously, you kept me, you disciplined me, you made me die to self, you made me live for you. The glory is all the Lamb. That's the cry of a Christian. It is that realization that we captured in the gospel in this life that causes us to freely rejoice in living for Jesus our Lord, bearing fruit in every good work for him. In closing, I found a poem 
that I'm going to read to us, and then we're going to pray. Are you prepared to look up into the face of Jesus Christ and say, Lord of every thought and action, Lord to send and Lord to stay, Lord in speaking, writing, giving, Lord in all things to obey, now and evermore to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would give us grace upon grace to examine our hearts according to your word. I pray that we will examine our hearts against the backdrop of who Christ is, that he is Savior. He saved us from our sins, but he is Lord and he saves us to a life of righteousness for your glory and honor. I pray that you will help us understand the lordship of Christ, to live in light of his lordship. May we submit every part of our life to you. Help us this week to take inventory of any areas, maybe rooms in our hearts, closets, maybe that are locked off and kept away from you. May we open them up, confess, tear everything out, and clean it. And give it to Christ. May we hold nothing back from you. Bow before you in all things. Our marriages, our children, our finances, our recreation, our eating, and our drinking. May it all bow to the Lordship of Christ. Who saved us, but also bought us. May we realize that and understand we are not our own. We are highly valued royal children because we bear the blood of Christ on the doorposts of our life. We give you thanks for that. We celebrate that. I pray that we will walk in gratitude because of this knowledge and this truth. May it take root in our heart, change us, define us, shape us, form us, so that we will look more like your Son, in whose name we give thanks and pray these things. Amen. Here's our charge for today. May God grant us to live in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. May God bless our marriages, parenting, jobs, recreation, relationships, and all that we say and do to be subject to the lordship of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we take him at his word and learn the joy of obedience. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Merry Christmas.